Magic Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Conscious human action from intuitive thinking is a spiritual path. Is a human being spiritually free or subject to the iron necessity of purely natural law? Few questions have excited so much ingenuity. The idea of the freedom of human will has found both sanguine supporters and stiff-necked opponents in plenty. There are those who, in their moral zest, cast aspersions on the intellect of anyone who can deny so obvious a fact as freedom. They are opposed by others who see the acme of unscientific thinking in the belief that the lawfulness of nature fails to apply to the area of human action and thinking. One and the same thing is explained equally often as the most precious possession of humankind and as its worst illusion. Infinite subtlety has been expended to explain how human freedom is consistent with the workings of nature, of which, after all, human beings are also a part. No less effort has gone into the attempt from the other side to explain how such a delusion could ever have arisen. All But the most superficial thinkers feel that we have to do here with one of the most important questions of life, religion, conduct, and science. It is among the sad signs of the superficiality of contemporary thinking that a book intending to coin a new belief from the results of recent scientific research, David Friedrich Strauss's The Old and New Belief, contains nothing on this question but the words, We need not here go into the question of the freedom of human will. The supposed freedom of indifferent choice has been recognized as an empty phantom by every philosophy worthy of the name, while the moral valuation of human conduct and character remains untouched by the questioned. That is D.F. Strauss, 1808-1874, Der Alte und der Neue Glaube, The Old and the New Belief, 1872. A German theologian and philosopher, David Friedrich Strauss, developed a Hegelian theory of biblical interpretation. He caused a storm with his historical critical life of Jesus, in which he called the Gospels a historical myth. Something I tend to agree with. I cite this passage not because I think the book from which it derives has any 
special significance, but because it seems to me to express the opinion which the majority of our thinking contemporaries have been able to achieve on this question. Today, everyone who can claim to have outgrown scientific kindergarten appears to know that freedom cannot consist in choosing arbitrarily between two possible actions. There is always, so it is claimed, a quite specific reason why a person performs one specific action from among several possibilities. This seems obvious. Nevertheless, present-day opponents of freedom direct their principal attacks only against freedom of choice. After all, Herbert Spencer, whose views daily gain wider acceptance, says, quote, that anyone could desire or not desire arbitrarily, which is the real proposition concealed in the dogma of free will, is refuted as much through the analysis of consciousness as through the content of the preceding chapter, which was on psychology. Others also proceed from the same point of view when they combat the concept of free will. Their arguments can all be found in germinal form as early as Spinoza. What he presented with clarity and simplicity against the idea of freedom has since been repeated countless times, only generally sheathed in the most sophistic theoretical doctrines, so that it becomes difficult to recognize the simple course of thought on which everything depends. In a letter of October or November 1674, Spinoza writes, Thus I call a thing free that exists and acts out of the pure necessity of its nature, I call it compelled if its existence and activity are determined in a precise and fixed manner by something else. Thus God, for example, though necessary, is free, because he exists only out of the necessity of his nature. Similarly, God knows himself and everything else freely, because it follows from the necessity of his nature alone that he would know everything. You see, then, that I locate freedom not in free decision, but in free necessity." Let us, however, descend to created things, which are all determined to exist and to act in fixed and precise ways by outside causes. To see this more clearly, let us imagine a very simple case. A stone, for example, receives a certain momentum from an external cause that comes into contact with it, so that later, when the impact of the external cause has ceased, it necessarily continues to move. This persistence of the stone is compelled and not necessary, because it had to be established by the impact of an external cause. What applies here to the stone applies to everything else, no matter how complex and multifaceted. Everything is necessarily determined by an outside cause to exist and to act in a fixed and precise manner. Now please assume that the stone, as it moves, thinks and knows that it is trying, as much as it can, to continue in motion. This stone which is only conscious of its effort and by no means indifferent, will believe that it is quite free and that it continues in its motion not because of an external cause, but only because it wills to do so. But this is that human freedom that all claim to possess and that only consists in people being aware of their desires, but not knowing the causes by which they are determined. Thus, the child believes that it freely desires the milk, the angry boy that he freely demands revenge, and the coward flight. Strange choices. Again, drunkards believe it is a free decision to say what, when sober again, they will wish they had not said. And since this prejudice is inborn in all humans, 
it is not easy to free oneself from it. For although experience teaches us sufficiently that people are least able to moderate their desires, and that moved by contradictory passions they see what is better and do what is worse, yet they still consider themselves free, and this because they desire some things less intensely and because some desires can be easily inhibited through the recollection of something else that is familiar. Note that is Baruch Spinoza, 1632-1677. Morano, Dutch philosopher of Jewish-Portuguese parentage, expelled from the synagogue, he supported himself by grinding lenses and devoted himself to philosophy, especially Cartesianism deriving a kind of rational pantheism from it. See Rudolf Steiner, The Riddles of Philosophy. Quote, Spinozism is a world conception that seeks the ground of all world events in God and derives all process according to external necessary laws from this ground, just as mathematical truths are derived from axioms. Spinoza was important to Goethe and to German romantic idealism generally. See, uh, Yermiyahu Yovo, Spinoza and Other Heretics, Princeton University Press, 1989. Sounds good. Spinoza is an interesting one. I've spent a lot of time in the past looking at his work uh, in university. But, yeah, the issues that arose from parts of his thought are, are pretty apparent when you look compare them to the modern issues of philosophy. But he definitely put his finger on some, some controversies that are still being hashed out today. Because this view is expressed clearly and definitely, it is easy to discover the fundamental error in it. Just as a stone necessarily carries out a specific movement in response to an impact, human beings are supposed to carry out an action by a similar necessity if impelled to it by any reason. Human beings imagine themselves to be the free originators of their actions only because they are aware of these actions. In so doing, however, they overlook the causes driving them, which they must obey unerringly. The error in this train of thought is easy to find. Spinoza and all who think like him overlook the human capacity to be aware not only of one's actions, but also of the causes by which one's actions are guided. No one will dispute that a child is unfree when it desires milk, as is a drunkard who says things and later regrets them. Both know nothing of the causes, active in the depths of their organism, that ex exercise irresistible control over them. But is it justifiable to lump together actions of this kind with those in which humans are conscious not only of their actions, but also of the reasons that motivate them? Are the actions of human beings really all of a single kind? Should the acts of a warrior on the battlefield, a scientist in the laboratory, a diplomat involved in complex negotiations be set scientifically on the same level as that of a child when it desires milk? It is certainly true that the solution to a problem is best sought where it is simplest, but the lack of a capacity to discriminate has often brought about endless confusion. And there is, after all, a profound difference between knowing and not knowing why I do something. This seems self-evident. Yet the opponents of freedom never ask whether a motive that I know and see through compels me in the same sense as the organic process that causes a child to cry for milk. You can really see how philosophy was being divided at this time, uh, you know, 100 plus years ago, 
during the whole Victorian into the modern era between older philosophy and the new rise of psychology. That's just so clear in this case. Edward von Hartmann, in his Phenomenology of Moral Consciousness, claims that human willing depends on two main factors, motive and character. If we consider all human beings as the same, or at least see their differences as negligible, then their will appears to be determined from without, namely by the circumstances they encounter. But if we consider that different human beings make an idea or mental picture into a motive only when their character is such that the idea in question gives rise to a desire, then human beings appear to be determined from within and not from without. But because we must ourselves make an idea that impinges from without into a motive of action in accordance with our character, we imagine that we are free, that is, independent of external motivation. But according to Edward von Hartmann, the truth is that, quote, even though we ourselves first raise ideas into motives, yet we do this not arbitrarily, but according to the necessity of our characterological organization, that is, we are anything but free. Here, too, no consideration is given to the difference between motives that I allow to affect me only after having permeated them with my consciousness and those that I follow without having a clear knowledge of them. So it's pretty clear what Steiner's getting at here, right? Um, he's creating some differentiation of motives between those that we're not aware of and those that we become aware of and then allow after examination to influence us. This is uh, definitely somewhat magical thinking. This leads immediately to the standpoint from which the matter will be considered here. Can the question of the freedom of our will be posed narrowly by itself? And if not, with what other questions must it necessarily be linked? If there is a difference between a conscious motive and an unconscious drive, then the conscious motive will bring with it an action that must be judged differently from an action done out of blind impulse. Our first question will concern this difference. The position we must take on freedom itself will depend on the result of this inquiry. What does it mean to have knowledge of the motives of one's actions? This question has been given too little attention because we always tear into the inseparable whole that is the human being. We distinguish between the doer and the knower, but we have nothing to say about the one who matters most the one who acts out of knowledge. People say that human beings are free when they obey reason alone and not animal desires. Or they say that freedom means being able to determine one's life and actions according to purposes and decisions. Nothing is gained by such claims. For the question is precisely whether reason, purposes, and decisions exercise control over human beings in the same way as animal desires. If a reasonable decision arises in me of itself with the same necessity as hunger and thirst, then I can but obey its compulsion, and my freedom is an illusion. Another turn of phrase puts it thus, to be free does not mean being able to will whatever one wills, but being able to do what one wills. In his Atomistics of the Will, the poet-philosopher Robert Hammerling, great poet, actually, I love his work, expresses this idea incisively, quote, 
Human beings can certainly do what they will, but they cannot will what they will, since their willing is determined by motives. They cannot will what they will? Let us look at these words more closely. Do they contain any reasonable meaning? Must freedom of the will then consist in being able to will something without having grounds, without a motive? But what does willing mean other than having grounds to do or attempt this rather than that? To will something without grounds, without motive, would mean willing something without willing it. The concept of motivation is inseparably linked to the concept of the will. Without a determining motive, the will is an empty capacity. It only becomes active and real through the motive. Thus, it is quite correct that the human will is not free, inasmuch as its direction is always determined by the strongest motive. But it is absurd, in contrast to this unfreedom, to speak of a conceivable freedom of the will that involves being able to will what one does not will. Note Robert Hammerling, 1830 to 1889, Atomistic des Willens, Volume 2. Hammerling was an Austrian poet, philosopher, dramatist, and schoolteacher in Vienna, Graz, and Trieste. He was an acquaintance of Rudolf Steiner. See Robert Hammerling, Poet and Thinker, in The Presence of the Dead. That's actually my favorite Steiner book, The Presence of the Dead. And yeah, we had to recite and memorize a lot of Hammerling's poetry when I did high school in Vienna. See also Rudolf Steiner in Autobiography and Karmic Relationships, Volume 2. Even here, only motives in general are discussed without considering the difference between conscious and unconscious motives. If a motive acts upon me, and I am forced to follow it because it proves to be the strongest of its kind, then the thought of freedom ceases to have any meaning. Why should it matter to me whether I can do something or not, if I am forced by the motive to do it? The first question is not whether I can or cannot do something once the motive has operated upon me, but whether there exist only motives of the kind that operate with compelling necessity. If I have to will something, then I may even be utterly indifferent as to whether I can actually do it. If because of my character and circumstances prevailing in my environment, a motive were forced upon me that my thinking showed me was unreasonable, then I would even have to be glad if I could not do what I will. It is not a question of whether I can execute a decision once it is made, but of how the decision arises within me. It's very interesting, isn't it? What distinguishes humans from all other organic beings rests on rational thinking, activity we have in common with other organisms. Seeking analogies for human action in the animal kingdom does not help to clarify the concept of freedom. Modern natural science loves such analogies, and when science succeeds in finding among animals something similar to human action, it believes it has touched on the most important question of the science of humanity. Paul Ray's book, The Illusion of Free Will, offers one example of the misunderstandings to which this opinion leads. On page 5, Ray states that, with regard to freedom, quote, it is easy to explain why it appears to us as if the movement of the stone is necessary, while the donkey's will is not. The causes that move the stone are, after all, external and visible, but the causes by which the donkey desires are internal and invisible. Between us and the site of their activity, there lies the donkey's skull. 
one does not see the causal determination and therefore imagines that it is not present. The will, we say, while it is the cause of the donkey's turning around, is itself undetermined. It is an absolute beginning. Paul Ray, Die Illusion der Willensfreiheit. Ray was a friend of Friedrich Nietzsche and Lou Andres Salome and an influential alternative thinker of the time, 1849-1901. Here, too, is an utter disregard for human actions in which the human being has an awareness for the reasons for the action, for Ray explains, Between us and the site of their activity there lies the donkey's skull. We can see from these words alone that Ray has no inkling that there exist actions, not a donkey's, but a human's, for which there lies between us and the action the motive that has become conscious. He proves this again a few pages later when he says, We are not aware of the causes by which our will is determined, and so we imagine that it is not causally determined at all. But... Enough of examples proving that many fight against freedom without at all knowing what freedom is. Obviously, my action cannot be free if I, as the actor, do not know why I carry it out. But what about an action for which the reasons are known? This leads us to ask, what is the origin and the significance of thinking? For without understanding the soul's activity of thinking, no concept of the knowledge of anything, including an action, is even possible. When we understand what thinking means in general, it will be easy to clarify the role that thinking plays in human action. As Hegel rightly says, thinking turns the soul with which beasts too are gifted into spirit. Therefore, thinking will also give to human action its characteristic stamp. Note George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, 1770-1831. Encyclopedie der Philosophischen Wissenschaften, 1817, 2nd edition, 1827. The quotation is from the preface. See also Rudolf Steiner, The Riddles of Philosophy. For instance, Hegel wanted to express clearly and poignantly that he regarded thinking that is conscious of itself as the highest human activity, as the force through which alone a human being can gain a position with respect to ultimate questions. Hegel is a personality who lives completely in the element of thought. And that's from Steiner in his book, The Riddles of Philosophy. So, this is by no means to claim that all our actions flow only from the sober deliberations of our reason. I am far from calling human, in the highest sense, only those actions that proceed from abstract judgment alone. But as soon as our actions lift themselves above the satisfaction of purely animal desires, our motives are always permeated by thoughts. Love, pity, patriotism are springs of action that cannot be reduced to cold rational concepts. People say that the heart, the sensibility, comes into its own in such matters, no doubt. But heart and sensibility do not create the motives of action. They presuppose them, and then receive them into their own realm. Pity appears in my heart when the mental image of a person who arouses pity in me enters my consciousness. The way to the heart goes through the head. Love is no exception here. If it is not a mere expression of the sexual drive, then love is based on mental pictures that we form of the beloved. And the more idealistic these mental pictures are, the more blessed is the love. Here, too, thought is the father of feeling. 
People say that love makes us blind to the beloved's flaws, but we can also turn this around and claim that love opens our eyes to the beloved's strengths. Many pass by these good qualities without noticing them. One person sees them and, just for this reason, love awakens in the soul. What else has this person done but make a mental picture of what a hundred others have ignored? Love is not theirs because they lack the mental picture. We can approach the matter however we like. It only grows clearer that the question regarding the nature of human action presupposes another, that of the origin of thinking. I shall therefore turn to this question next. Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. That's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now. Hermetic Science Enterprises.co.uk